21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning into my Run Your Life podcast. Um, I've got a great guest lined up today. His name is Mike Kuzala. Uh, many of you know him as the kinesthetic classroom guy. Uh, Mike and I, uh, I've known about Mike's work for quite some time. Uh, a few months back, I had listened to his Voxcast with Jorge Rodriguez and, and Jorge's crew on Voxer. Um, and it was actually Jorge who connected Mike and I. And uh, over the past uh, few weeks, Mike and I have been talking on Skype and getting to know one another because we will be meeting face-to-face for the first time in Manila, Philippines in a couple weeks at the Ear Coast Conference, conference which is going to be great. Um, I'm not going to tell you too much about Mike um, because all of that will become evident as the uh, podcast goes on. So I'm just going to have Mike introduce himself and uh, tell us a little bit about himself. Okay, go ahead, Mike. Uh, hi, I am Mike Kazala, and you know, the, as as you mentioned, the author of the Kinesthetic Classroom: uh, Teaching and Learning Through Movement, and also Training in Motion, uh, a, a book that came out uh, in 2015. I uh, am married. I have two wonderful twin, uh, 19-year-olds, and live in the state of Pennsylvania in the United States, and. I'm also the uh, academic director for an educational consulting firm uh, called the Regional Training Center. Uh, we partner with uh, LaSalle University and the College of New Jersey to offer graduate courses for teachers in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and New Jersey. And the Kinesthetic Classroom is one of those graduate courses. So, that, so uh, go ahead, uh, go ahead, Mike. Continue. Uh, uh, you know, just to, to go, it'll give the listeners some. A little bit more background. Two of the other courses that we offer uh, that I designed is one in motivation and also another one on uh, wellness for both teachers and students. So those three courses really uh, capture what I'm passionate about in my life, my own life. Okay. Can you summarize those three courses again, the the big themes? Sure. Uh, You know, the the kinesthetic classroom uh, is really about, you know, using movement in the classroom, the importance of movement and the importance of physical activity, the importance of aerobic activity. So though it's, it's, it's about really how our brain prefers to learn, there's a real wellness component in it also. And so then the, the, the wellness course for uh, teachers, you know, that the original idea behind that course was, you know, every child deserves nothing less than a teacher's best every day in every classroom around the world. Uh, and, and so, you know, we, we set out to create this wellness course and we've had a lot of success with it and it's a real passion of mine. And that course is written mostly for teachers. And so what brings that together is what I what I feel, the third course, the, the motivation course, the, the art and science of uh, creating student motivation uh, is really about you know, the, the biggest problem that teachers face every day. And it's not, you know, here in the United States, we talk about the common core. It's not the common core. It's not teacher assessment. 
It is not uh, assessment of children. It is, is student motivation. It is the, the, every day that is the biggest uh, barrier a teacher faces. And, and a part of that is, is looking at themselves. And, and are they on fire? Are they motivated? Do they live a motivated life? Because and that just naturally flows into the classroom. So that, that serves as you being uh, you know, a, a well teacher. It serves as the underlying principle for you engaging students or using kinesthetic activities. So I feel like the, the, the trifecta or the three courses together really uh, nicely complement each other. Yeah, um, and you know, you know, we've been we've been really talking about our passions uh, behind the scenes on Skype, and and I I knew you as the kinesthetic classroom guy, to be honest, and and all of your work with neuroscience and movement. But once we started to chat, we realized a common link that we have is is wellness and motivation, and our passion for training teachers and and kind of emphasizing the importance of of teacher well-being and and teacher motivation and student motivation. Uh, There's two things that come to mind as you were describing those three themes and um, how you were uh, just um, explaining or or describing how every student needs a teacher to be at their best day in and day out. And I think of, I think her, I forget her name, but she's got an amazing TED Talk. uh, It's called Every Kid Needs a Champion. Her name was uh, Rita something, but she um, she was a 41-year veteran. She did this TED Talk that was viewed millions of times, and she stresses that, that the importance that every kid really needs a champion in their life to move them forward. And then I think of what you were talking about, flow, when the motivation well-being is there, and it's Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, though his work on flow, that... Um, he, he did years and years of research into when people are in flow. And it's so important, you know, as a, as a teacher to be in flow um, as, as often as you can and to maintain that motivation. Yeah. Oh, I, I, absolutely. You, know, you said so much there. Uh, you, know, you know, going back to every student needs a champion. You know, when, when as an adult, you know, when you think about, those defining moments in your educational career as a student, it, it most of the time, not always, wasn't about the topic. It was about the personal relationship that was built. It was about the champion that you had. Because we also, because of the way our brain works, we remember those, those teachers who weren't necessarily our champions. Maybe they championed someone else, but it wasn't you. And, and it's, it's, you know, what I like to say, and I'm, I'm borrowing from a good friend of mine, Leo Barlighter, uh, emotional environment creates the uh, uh, intellectual success, and it's so critical and so important. And that you know, teachers being in flow and teachers being mindful. You know, we talk about student mindfulness. Well, teacher mindfulness is also critical yeah. to creating a really great classroom atmosphere. Yeah, um, it just came. I just did a quick search as you were talking there, and uh, every kid needs a champion. It's Rita Pearson. Her name is. Um, and uh, she actually she died about a year after she gave that TED talk. Um, can you hear me? I can. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. So, um, anyways, uh, yeah. So, if if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen Rita Pierce, uh, Pearson's TED talk, "Every Kid Deserves a Champion," please check it out. It's worth your time. Um, Mike, I'm going to describe. Uh, or I'm going to read um, something that David Sousa, I think Sousa, um, wrote about you. So he describes your book, The Kin- Kinesthetic Classroom, 
as this. Here is a resource that is based on sound research in neuroscience and cognitive psychology and filled with practical suggestions on how to incorporate movement into all kinds of learning activities at every grade level. The Kinesthetic Classroom is a must-have book for every educator who wants to improve student motivation and achievement. Now, your book, Mike, was published in 2010. And when we were talking pre-show, I asked you um, to describe the Mike um, Kazala of 2016. And if you were to rewrite that book, how would the, the 2010 Kinesthetic Classroom book change? Well, uh, of course, I, I've changed. You know, I'm six years older. I've raised uh, children into adulthood. I've seen their educational processes and, and how important the emotional link, the cognitive link, is to educational success. So I, I think I would uh, continue. You know, we talked a lot about the brain in that book. We talked a lot about emotional connection. We talked a lot about implicit learning. We talked a lot about state management. And I would even go beyond those now and, and go deeper in those topics because I don't think that they're topics that teachers are familiar with enough. Movement and is, is a means to an end. It's about creating a brain-friendly classroom. It's about creating uh, an, a great emotional environment. It's about creating emotion. So, so the book would be more detailed in those ideas. The book would be more detailed in the research because it's so six years ago. Yeah. The, the body of research that supports this and also supports the, the separate but connected idea of aerobic activity and cognition has grown tremendously and it's robust and we have a greater uh, and more detailed meaning about it. So, so that part would grow. And also, you know, aside from those things, I, I do like to uh, work on practical applications. So, you know, there's a framework in that book. So I think the, the framework would go deeper. We'd be a little bit more explicit about how teachers can use the framework and, and to use movement six different ways in their classroom. We'd provide even more uh, detail and depth to the application because it's all it's all connected. Um, I, you know, I, I, I just have a more, uh, if I can say this at age 50, I have more mature, refined view on, on things and, and have read more research. And I've grown in my role with the company uh, that I work for. I run my own consulting company. And so there's a lot, a lot of ways that I've grown. And that would just show itself in the book. Yeah. Um, when you mentioned state management, can you kind of summarize what state management, uh, what you mean by that? Sure. State, ma- state management is the uh, management of the brain, body, emotional state of the learner. And here's why that's so important is because there's two criteria for storing information in the long term. And they are, does it, or the questions are, does it make sense and does it have meaning? And meaning is the more critical criteria. And, and here, here is the directly from Eric Jensen, um, meaning making is state dependent. Now, how often does a teacher think about that in their daily lesson? They're thinking about their, their topic area, they're thinking about their, uh, their subject area, but they're, they're you know, often not cognizant of the state of the learner. And when you know that the state of your learner, that's a critical factor in meaning making, and that meaning making is critical in long-term memory stores, you start paying attention to that. If you're about to, you know, if you've been 
going on about something for 20 minutes and you're about to hit something really important and you know you see the eyes starting to wander and, and you see the faces starting to lose interest and you know, kids are yawning it's time to stop and manage their state now yeah. movement isn't the only way to manage state but it's a great way to manage state move them for 60 seconds they laugh a little move a little sit them back down and then boom hit them with that important content that's in a, in a blip you know, what state management is about. Yeah, we um, we talked about uh, in our last Skype call last week about our, you know, I, and I mentioned Tony Robbins in my last podcast with Orlando Bowen. I told you about Orlando, the uh, former pro football player and, and the podcast I recorded with him. And uh, Orlando does a ton of work on um, leadership training with youth and leadership training in, in business as well. Um, and we talked about the idea of empowering language versus disempowering language and how that um, connects with um, everything we do at a very emotional level. So Tony Robbins, obviously, you know, we're both fans of his and, and he gets a bad rap as being that infomercial rah, rah, rah guy. But uh, so much of what he does is, is, uh, is critical to, to the way we um, deal with our own emotions and, and get ourselves into a to a, a more positive emotional state, but um, do you want to talk about um, your biggest takeaway from Tony Robbins and the work that you do um, with your consulting? Oh, for sure. I, you know, I, I, if I have to go back to one person, it, it's him. Uh, big Tony Robbins fan. Finally, uh, about a year and a half ago, I went to one of his uh, workshops. At, not bigger than a workshop is business mastery class for, for about a week. And, you know, he is a master of state management at no point during, during one of his seminars, are you disinterested, disengaged? I mean, imagine a classroom that's like that. Yeah. It, it would be un- unbelievable. I mean, you are engaged every sense of the word in every part of your body and every part of your brain at every moment. Uh, and, and he carefully plans it, and he uses movement, and light, and, and emotion. He's big on emotion. You know, we are our emotions. So, uh, and he talks about edutainment. You know, people want to be entertained, and they want to be educated. How do you combine the two? How do you create uh, people uh, to get into those states that allow them to learn and allow them to uh, be interested and, and make it memorable for them? So there were so many takeaways. I was on my chair half the time. We'd go from 8 in the morning till 10 at night and maybe have an hour break the entire day. And we could have gone till 3 in the morning and nobody would have cared. Yeah, it yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've, I'm rereading his work and, and it's that it's so applicable to teachers and the language they use with students. And, um, you know, I guess being in consulting now and, and, and really observing teachers in action in the classroom and in PE and in the single subjects, I'm I'm really fine tuned now to listen to disempowering language that's being used, and I'm very sensitive to it. And and I'm I'm not saying that these teachers um, uh, have um, you know they they want to use this language, but they're using it at a subconscious level. They're not even aware of it a lot of times. So I think it's just that idea of of being very aware of the language we use and. And understanding if it's disempowering or empowering ourselves in our self-talk, as well as um, using the language with our students, and, and if it's disempowering or empowering to them. So, um, very important to consider. 
Absolutely. Especially when people are thinking about their self-talk. They don't even... I know many people who I listen to and I cringe and it's this negative language. They don't mean to be, but it's what their habit is. And they don't even see themselves as negative or they don't even see their language as negative. But it sets themselves up for failure or knocking their head against the same door again and again. And then, you know, if they're with kids, it sets their kids up to, to repeat that language or to think that way. And the language we use uh, is so important. And the more empowering the language, uh, the more empowered the child. Yeah. For uh, just, I'll just give one quick example. Um, so it, I will listen to people when they teach or in discussions with, with one another, colleagues and stuff. And you will often hear things like, I hate it when, or I'm, I get so frustrated when. So the idea of, of flipping the paradigm and flipping that language is instead, just remove the words hate and frustration from, from your vocabulary. And instead of saying, I hate it when, or I get so frustrated when you switch it to, I prefer that. And just that, that switch to, I prefer instead of I hate becomes very empowering and, and serves us better at a very emotional level. So that's just one little example of how Robin's helps people to understand the power of language and the, and the words that they use. Yeah, and Antonio always says, if you want to get better answers, ask better questions. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, absolutely, you give, you give a great example of uh, empowering language just with the change of a word or two. And, you know, Tony also talks about, you know, when, when you feel it, when you're in a negative state, if you get yourself to a grateful state, that changes everything, and it then changes your language. And it changes. You know, I'm going to, uh, well, of course, here a little bit, but you know, Tony, and, and I'm a big believer in this. Our, our physiology can change our psychology. Yes. And and something else that people can practice. If you're not feeling so good, you know, you know you're kind of negative in your mind, etc. You can change that on a dime with your physiology. So I teach this to people. I teach it to kids I work with. I teach it to adults. Uh, and, and there is also a great TED talk out about that, about uh, body language and posture and power posing. Oh, that's Amy Cuddy. Yes. 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 Yeah, I, yeah. We know scientifically now that uh, holding yourself in certain positions you know, lowers your cortisol, raises your testosterone levels, changes. Yeah, that's right. Opening yourself up. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the Wonder Woman pose, hands on hips, elbows out, or opening up your arms for a few minutes before you're about to do something changes how you think. So I tell people, I would tell my kids this growing up, you know, going out the door to school, hey, chin up, head back, shoulders back, smile, even if you don't feel like it, that's going to influence your psychology. Absolutely. And and my wife is a mindfulness instructor. And, and when she's she's presented in, in Germany and uh, Hong Kong at some big conferences, as well as uh, the National P Institute in North Carolina, Artie Kamiya's um, conference, and the first thing she does is get teachers uh, to uh, get in the power pose. You know, so the Amy Cuddy power pose, arms up, open yourself up. And yeah. it leads to actual neurochemical changes in your body. It increases right. oxytocin and decreases cortisol. And it's proven to change us at an emotional state. So there's, there's hardcore neuroscience evidence behind it. Uh, imagine starting your day like that with kids if you're a teacher. Uh, you know, just for, for two minutes at the start of the class, start of the day, power posing. Yeah. Getting in, 
right mindset? Is it something physical? You know, maybe they don't know how to meditate. Maybe they don't have, uh, you know, mindfulness uh, harnessed yet. But, but in two minutes, by changing their physiology, they can change how they look at the day, how they look at your class, how they look at you. And you're doing it with them. And everybody feels good together. It's incredible. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's the idea of the teachers can change their physiological state when they're feeling like shit. And they come into school and they just don't have it. Go stand in front of the mirror. It sounds corny, airy, fairy, fluffy. But you go stand in front of the mirror for two minutes with your hands up in that power pose. Anybody listening to this, listen to Amy Cuddy's TED Talk. She will do the power pose. You will see what it's all about. And the beautiful thing is nobody has to see you doing it. Nobody's going to know that you're doing it. This is a private little thing between you and yourself. But it does really work to improve your physiological state. Um, so I wanna, I'm want i going to play devil's advocate here um, for a second. Um, and I'm going to look at the work you do from a physical education perspective, okay? Now, I understand the value, value of your work and everything you present. Um, and I'm not saying that PE teachers are interpreting it this way, but PE teachers um, might think, so what? Yes, movement, yeah, we already know that. We already know. That's our job. We get kids moving. So we're already doing what you're preaching in your book. So if they haven't read your book, and they just quickly dismiss your work as being, yeah, we already know that. We already know movement's important. What do you have to say to physical education teachers about the work you do and, and kind of challenge them to, to learn more about that neuroscience and the impact that it can have, even though they're already getting kids moving? What's something that they can do better based on the neuroscience? Well, I'm in front of PE teachers quite a bit. So I take great pride in this. And there are several different things. And number one is becoming an advocate uh, for this type of thing. I mean, maybe they understand it and know it. But they need to become the advocate and they need to become the resource in their, in their building. Because oftentimes, the rest of the staff does not know. And they need help. And a physical educator can become the resource in the, in the building. I believe that the physical educator is one of the lead educators in the building. Because I know and understand what their discipline does for the rest of the school. And the other thing we talk about in the framework, the, the third part of the framework in the kinesthetic classroom is, is supporting uh, physical fitness and, and, and uh, exercise, or exercise and physical fitness. It's critical. And so we, we write about it in the kinesthetic classroom. And if you're a physical educator and don't understand that neuroscience, that you know, you're doing your kids a disservice. You know, I, and when I talk about physical education, I'm talking about a, a daily fitness-oriented, in-your-target-heart-rate zone, physical education. So those kids have an advantage in the rest of their school day. Uh, and I really want PE teachers to understand that. And when a teacher goes to a physical educator and says, hey, how do I put more movement in my classroom? Well, hey, here's the framework. You're going to prepare your kids' brains. You're going to provide uh, brain breaks, or and I get I get uh, yelled at that a little bit. Brain boosts, brain energizers. Uh, you can support exercise in your classroom. You can create a bonding, team building. We call it class cohesion. We uh, you can review content. You can teach content six different ways. And physical educators to make themselves uh, uh, an integral part of the education community in their school and not be put on the chopping block. That's one way to do that, that they become a real resource 
you know, present on it at school, talk to school boards, talk to parents. So I think it's critical that they understand truly what a kinesthetic classroom is and, and exactly how physical education enhances math education, enhances language arts, enhances social studies, science, etc. It's key. It is all about brain-body connection, and what they're doing is key, and they need to understand its power. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. Um, I think that uh, a lot of times now... PE teachers, we, we know that it's important to get kids moving. And I'm just, I'm just talking about my own work here and my own philosophy. So, you know, a lot of the work that I do in physical education when I was teaching um, was uh, to, yes, get kids moving, but to also tap into their levels of intrinsic motivation and to get them really reflecting on their own attitudes about physical education. And this is a conversation I've had with lots of researchers. And one of the things I ask researchers is um, to tell me about their research, first of all, and then to tell me about their ideal report card. If you could go into a, a school and change the reporting structure, what is your ideal report card? And there's a lot of researchers who, who believe, obviously, the reporting system is all out of whack. It's not really reflecting what it needs to truly reflect. Um, but there's a lot of researchers that I've spoken to that said they would love it if the report card for PE simply was about the, um, the kids, how the kids' attitudes towards physical activity has changed or has, hasn't changed. You know, so just that idea about really valuing the attitudes the kids hold about physical activity rather than assessing physical skills. You know, and if I'm a parent, I, you know, I am a parent, but I want to, I want to know that about my kid in physical education. I want to know if they're embracing being physically active and how their views about physical activity are changing. So if you could go into a school and you could create your own report card for physical education, what would it look like? Uh, well, I, I, it's interesting you talk about attitudes because it's so critical. And when, when a child enters school, it's almost like they're, they're brainwashed that physical education is secondary. We need to do this, this, and this first. And then, you know, here's physical education. That is a big thing that needs to change. So I think attitudes towards physical education is very important. I think understanding our physical needs and physical growth and how well we understand that cognitively at each level, if we can put that on a report card every year, every quarter, uh, how it's, it's, it's promoting a healthy learner for their entire life. So with that, when they leave school, uh, and, and, a, and a report card reflects, can reflect this, when they leave as seniors in high school, they are totally physically educated about what they'll need to do the rest of their life uh, to be successful. If you, if you don't have that in place, your life will not be as successful as it could be. That's got to be in place first, your physical health. And that often finds its way moving down to the bottom of someone's to-do list. We move ourselves down to the bottom of our to-do list. And if you are not well, healthy, physically educated, and thinking about it on a daily basis, you are not going to, to lead a life passion like you could. It, it becomes debilitating. So it, it starts when the kids are four or five years old, even before that. And it's a lifelong thing. And, and it should get that same emphasis as every other subject. And I think a report card could reflect that, their, their understanding of the needs that they have in order to be successful 
on the on the the, uh, the physical education end. You know, when I give talks to students, which I, I work more with adults, when I give talks to students, I give them several pieces of advice for their life, and I always end with stay physically fit because it will just enhance every part of your life and make the success you want to achieve possible. And it's difficult. Yeah. And it's got to be thought about and it's got to be planned. Yeah. But see, you and I and other other educators and people outside of education who value physical activity, I know that I need to wake up and I need to go for a run or work out, and, and my, my mind um, set has shifted a little bit. I used to go on like 90-minute runs, and, and I felt as though I needed that long, slow run. But my, you know, I, I've shifted a little bit. I can go out for a 20-minute run and then do 15 minutes of cross-training, and I feel just as good as if I did a 90-minute run. So to me, it's just being physically active. But I know in my heart, emotionally, physically, spiritually, you know, I, I need physical activity in my life. And, and if I do not have that, then I'm slow and I'm sluggish and I, I just don't respond the way I'm capable of responding. And I'm not as innovative or creative as I can be in my life. Now, you know that. Physical educators know that. I think that's so critical to get kids to understand that. And we can get them to understand. And there was a test that I wanted to do at my school, and it was so hard to roll out. And um, But I'll just give you a little nutshell glimpse into it. But I essentially wanted the kids to go back to the classroom after P.E., and about an hour after, I wanted the classroom teacher, imagine every kid has their own chart, their emotional well-being chart, you know, their physical emotional well-being chart. And about an hour after PE, they can plot how they're feeling, right? So they're going to plot every day whether they have PE or not. But over time, what I wanted was this evidence and data that showed kids that they were at their emotional well-being best, their physical well-being best on days that they had PE because it's that post-effect of the exercise, and I really wanted to roll it out, and it just didn't roll out. You know, it was, it was hard to get the classroom teachers to do it, but it was, and, and there's lots of flaws to this study, and it wouldn't be uh, super accurate, and it could be torn apart by researchers, but that's not the point of why I was doing it. I was simply doing, I wanted to do it to get kids to make that connection. You know what? Yes, I actually feel better emotionally, and I'm, I'm sharper on days that I've exercised and I've had physical activity so that they can embrace it. But I think it's very possible to, to get kids to understand that connection and it's what is not happening enough in PE is to, to get kids to understand that. Yeah, boy, it's critical. You know, we, we understand if there's, if there's anxiety, if there's depression, if there's addiction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If there's a cognitive dysfunction, if you will, that one of the, the best answers uh, is, is aerobic activity. It just changes how your brain's up, how your brain operates. It, uh, it, it balances chemicals in the brain that, that we try to do with drugs without the side effects. And kids, certainly, they have to understand that. And what I was thinking about when you were, were, were talking was the fact that our, our teachers, when they're educated, they get to become teachers at 22, 23, 24 years of age, and they don't understand that often. And 
that needs to change. Uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work in Mississippi, and there's a, there's a foundation there uh, called the Bauer Foundation, and they're doing a lot of great work for kids and for teachers in Mississippi. One of the suggestions that I made uh, and discussions that we had, I, I told the person who runs the foundation, I said, if you really want to create large change in this state, you've got to get to the undergraduate program. And, and, and one of the things that they implemented, which I had you know, a very small part in, uh, but just very proud of, at the University of Mississippi, now they have a, a, physical educate, a, a physical activity and wellness, I believe I might not have that title correct, uh, endorsement that you can get in an undergraduate education major. And I think that is fantastic. More of that needs to happen so that when teachers go right into the classroom, they know what we're talking about and they can influence the kids yeah for sure and um a question about the work you do when you go into schools what's the greatest resistance that you meet when when you go to work with schools if you had to sum up the greatest roadblocks and the resistance that you have to overcome when when uh training what is it well it it, it is my kids will get out of control if, if they do this, I won't be able to get my kids back in, back in line, back in order, back in their seat. Uh, if, if we do it this way, yeah. <laughs> that's what we're trying to get away from a little bit. And what I, what I do convince them of, or people wouldn't call me back and have them work in their schools again, is that this type of teaching and learning becomes your best classroom manager. Kids are more motivated. You're meeting their basic human needs. They want to be a part of their classroom, and and it, you know it does take a little bit of training, but if it's all done well, they'll sit right back down because you're giving them the breaks they need. You're giving their brain what they need, and not just breaks. They're learning. It's natural for them to learn this way, and so you're doing what they naturally want to do. It's harder to keep kids in control in seats all the time. It takes yeah. a lot more energy by the teacher to do it that way versus allowing what naturally the brain wants to have happen. Yeah. So that's my biggest. I'm going to show you something here. We're on Skype, and, and we talked about this last week. Yes. Okay, it's it's a book. Um, I, I checked this book out a couple years ago, maybe a, a year and a half ago, and uh, then we talked about it last week, so I signed it out of the library, and I'm looking at it again and uh, getting some ideas. But why don't you tell the audience about this book and why every physical educator should have this book? Sure, the third teacher. Uh, I'll give you a little background. I, I had the great pleasure of hearing Sir Ken Robinson speak uh, locally here in the United States. And, you know, one of the, one of the uh, authors and, and founders of the company that produced that book was also there in a roundtable discussion. It was fascinating. So the third teacher being the environment yes. uh, of the classroom and, and, and the school, not just the classroom, but the entire school, and setting it up so it's conducive to learning and conducive to movement Absolutely. and conducive to cooperative groups and just uh, conducive to what you mentioned earlier, to flow within yeah. a classroom. So it's the architecture and the educator and the student acting in one you know, homogenous site, if you will, in a certain type of flow that allows education to happen freely and smoothly. Yeah, and it's really fascinating work. Yeah, yeah, it's an amazing book. And uh, just to um, share the title again for people listening, it's called The Third Teacher, uh, 79 Ways You Can Use Design to Transform Teaching and Learning. 
Um, fascinating book uh, and, and really uh, emphasizes um, the importance, like you said, of, of, of movement, but um, the power of physical education, too, is just comes alive in the pages of this book. Absolutely. I recommend it for anybody and hope they go ahead and, and, and find that book and read it. Yeah, and that's how change happens. So, you know, people get ideas, and ideas spread, and they, they talk to the right people, and talk to parents and school board members, etc. Et and that's how change can occur. And the reason where I was, I was at a private school in Pennsylvania, and the reason that uh, they had the everybody that they did there was because they were making those changes in their school, and and good for them. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to switch gears here, and uh, you, you've got a really interesting story. Um, I think some of the most fascinating people that I've come across in my life, you know, I've been teaching internationally for 20 years now, um, and, you know, I'm so lucky to do this podcast, and the guests that I have on this podcast have all taken major uh, direction changes in their life at some point. Um, I think of where I grew up, rural, uh, you know, rural Canada, and l- lots of the people that I grew up with have always kind of done the same thing, and they're, you know, and that's not a bad thing at all, and I'm not implying that it's a bad thing, but I think a pro- profound shift in thinking and in life can happen when we take a major life change, and we change direction, so. You told me kind of a fascinating story, but you were had nothing to do with physical education, movement, or anything at all. You were a music guy. So I, I was. Yeah. So why don't, why don't you talk about your your background um, in high school and going into university and and the idea that you even said so yourself in the pre-show that that you as a university student would never imagine. That you know, twenty twenty five years later, you'd be working in the area of neuroscience and movement. And, and here's the funny here's the funny thing, Andy. Even at the age of say eighteen, I didn't know I was going to be in music. I had never read or, or played a note of music in my until I was almost twenty. And I was a business major, and I was not a very good student, frankly, at that time in my life. Uh, I don't like to admit that, but it's true. It inspires some people when they hear the story. Yeah. And, and I wasn't inspired, and I found, uh, well, actually, I had to take a, a computer course, and that's the only course I could take. I wasn't even qualified to move on, because I just had to pass this computer course, and back then it was Cobalt, Fortran, and then it was floppy disks, you know, and, yeah. and I, I took some other courses, and they were, I decided, you know what, I like music more than the average person, so I took an introduction to music course. And I loved it. I went back into the chairperson's office and said, I'd like to take a 20th century music course. And I didn't know. I thought it was going to be about Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And it happened to be about uh, Stravinsky and Rimsky, Korsakoff. And I fell in love. Fell in love. I had found a passion. And I had already been into physical activity and, and really lifting weights hard at that time. So we'll put that over to the side for a moment. So... I, I needed to pick an instrument because they said, they said, okay, yeah, you can be a music major. What do you play? And I said, nothing. <laughs> and, and they said, you got to pick an instrument. And, you know, for, for people who are familiar with this movie, I, I don't you know how many of your listeners will, but St. Elmo's Fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? Nin- I, I 1986, man. 1986. Yeah, that's right. 1980s. And I, I like the way the saxophone looked on Rob Lowe. Isn't that shallow <laughs> and awful? But it changed my life. And I picked the saxophone. 
I got really good really quickly. Long story short, I, uh, I, I, I had a 10 year band directing career. I got my undergrad. I got my never below a three, five again. I got my master's degree in music at the university of Northern Colorado, uh, which is one of the best jazz schools in the United States. And it was a phenomenal experience. My life was changing it by the minute. And, uh, I became band director, and you know, so the whole time I was exercising like a madman. So all these things were playing. You know, multiple intelligence was big at the time, and I had this music and this, you know, you know, physical part. And I went to work, and I started teaching. Uh, or I started taking graduate courses because I needed to to uh, take them to get my level two certification in the state of Pennsylvania. I loved the courses I was taking through this company. Uh, the regional training center, and eventually I went to work, started teaching courses for them. So here's where the switch comes in. So I started teaching a, a course on the brain. That's what I was trained in. And I became a brain junkie. I read everything I could get my hands on, every piece of research. Uh, I read every book I could get my hands on. I was trained to teach the course. I taught it like this graduate course at the graduate level like 40 times. I started using these movement activities with adults. And they would do their graduate projects for me, and they would come back and say, "What change?" You know, we, we talk about the interior parts of the brain, the exterior parts of the brain. We talk about uh, uh, memory systems, all this stuff. They'd come back with their projects and say, "You know, what changed my classroom the most over the last two weeks? Movement." We were talking about all you not really, and, and I was finding this again and again and again on these projects. So I teamed up with a physical educator in Pennsylvania, and we wrote this graduate course in the kinesthetic classroom, and it became this huge hit. And, and eventually, um, we, we saw, you know what, we don't want to use someone else's book for our course, and so we wrote a book. And so, boy, my, my life, there were some real defining moments, and, and it, it really, it, it's, when you look back, it was a natural path, but it didn't feel like it at the time. I think that's the beautiful thing, though, you know, and everybody, when they look back on on these shifts in their life, you, you never know it at the time, but your life is taking a major turn, and then the pieces of the puzzle just kind of fall into place, and you realize that you're you're meant to do the work that you do. So do you kind of believe that it's kind of your, your calling or your what you were meant to oh, do? Absolutely. And there, there, there are two other critical moments. One was leaving public education for the private sector. And I just, they called and said, do you want this position in our company? And I didn't even think twice about it. And I, I, I left to do that. But you know, before the book came out, about a year before the book came out, I ran what's called the Broad Street Run. So Broad Street is the main street in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's a 10 mile run. I had only been running for you know, not more than a year, had never run more than four miles in my life, took on the challenge. Someone trained me. I ran 10 miles. It was one of the best days of my life. So this physical activity, you know, you're running, they're playing the Rocky theme at the yeah, end yeah. of it, and you're running into the Naval Yard, Philadelphia, people cheering for you. And I was like, I, I ran this 10-mile race. That physical activity changed me that day. I thought, you know what? If I can do this, I can do anything. Yeah. So that set me up for writing that book. I was like, you know what? That book needs to be written. Done. I, I, I decided, and so Tony Robbins is big on that. I decided it went it went from a should to a must, and I did it with Tracy Lengel. We created the book, and when that once the book was published, it opened so many doors 
So, you know, in a way, physical activity also changed my life. Yeah. What's your connection with Gene Blades? Uh, Gene, we, we, uh, we brought Gene in. So, so I, I oversee about 130 graduate instructors, adjuncts in this company. And we have a yearly meeting. And so we brought, we knew of Gene's work. Uh, gosh, I don't know. This probably was uh, eight, ten years ago. We wanted her to be the guest speaker for our instructors. And she was phenomenal. We brought her in the next year, two years in a row. We've never done hey, that. Hey, Mike, give a little background for those who might not know Jean's work. Just give a little kind of a brief summary of, of who she is and what she does. Yeah, sure. Jean, Jean Blades is now Jean Blades Moise. Uh, she is, uh, runs and created action-based learning. And she has created the action-based learning lab and the neuronasium and some other types of things for the classroom. They're phenomenal programs. I've seen them in action myself, and to this day, I, I, you know, I have not seen many other things like it. And the data they have is incredible. And I, I, if I if I mention Gene with with action-based learning and and with the lab, I need to mention Cindy Hess as well. They were kind of co-created things early on, but uh, Gene's been big in, in, in neuroscience and movement, and she calls herself a, a kid. Kidneyologist, K-I-D, oh, yeah. you know. So we became good friends, and, and she she wrote the forward for our book. And you know, now we do work together. We do workshops together. Uh, we're doing uh, four together this summer, and uh, just she's a fantastic educator, and I really have a lot of respect. For her. Ah, excellent, yeah. And that's how you are going to Earcoast. So Jean was supposed to go, and she's quite busy. So. Um, in a couple of weeks, you're going to Manila uh, as a to to step in for Jean, who was too busy to attend that conference. Yeah, uh, she's such a dear friend, and I wanted to support her, and I was excited to be in in uh, front of teachers from what almost 20 countries. Uh, so I'm very very excited about the opportunity. And yes, yeah, she she wasn't able to attend, and so uh, they asked me to do it, and I was just so thrilled to be asked and happy to take part. Yeah, yeah it's going to be a really good conference. Um, we've got a few more minutes here. Uh, we're going to wrap up, but um, what would be, if we looked at the subject area of physical education, what would be your biggest concern about current day physical education? It is that not everybody yet is on board with a quality daily fitness-oriented physical education from the viewpoint of understanding what it does uh, cognitively and what it will do for a child's education and being part of the whole. I, I think that's my, my biggest concern. There are many physical educators on board. Yeah. But I, 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 think, I think it's, for some, a lack of understanding the research that's available to them that makes them irreplaceable. Yeah. I think that's critical for them. Yeah. What is your take on fitness testing? Oh, you know, that, that's that's interesting. Uh, I think if it if we're just trying to show improvement versus competition, I think it's fantastic. Uh, you know, because that's a real motivator for kids. You can get from here to here because sometimes kids who are not in the in the best shape can make the greatest gains. Yeah. And so I think it's really critical how the testing is done 
and how it's perceived by the student. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the interesting discussion I had a, a few months ago, and I continue to have with with a few researchers in the network. Um, obviously, I'm I'm a believer that um, we we have to create warm and nurturing environments for our students to get them to um, be intrinsically motivated to take the risk to uh, participate fully in, in physical education. So I believe that it comes at the, the intrinsic motivation level first. There, is, um, there are a few researchers out there believe, uh, who believe that it's skills-based, that, that once they develop the skills, then they feel competent and then they have the confidence to, to then participate more fully in PE. So it, it's, it's kind of skills first, confidence grows, participation increase, where I believe it's, they need to be intrinsically motivated to take the risk to participate. So it's just, there's no right or wrong answer, but what is your, um, I guess I, I, I sometimes think we get too caught up in skills in physical education and, um, you know, what, what's your take on that? So my question becomes, what if they don't master the skill? What if they don't? What if they don't master the skill? And, and so then you've got a defeated child. Every student, every day in every classroom, whether it's a physical education uh, classroom or, or a math classroom, has to deal with some level of risk in everything they do. And teachers have to recognize that. So we have to create an environment where risk is, is uh, rewarded, where it is you know, championed, and kids feel comfortable taking the risk because when, when, when you create effort and add risk, you know, a, a, some level of comfortable risk, um, you are creating a perceived opportunity for success. And that's the key to motivation. You know, every child's different with their level of risk. And unless you're creating an environment that creates that safe home for the mind where kids feel comfortable taking the risk, um, you're going to have kids who feel defeated Yeah. At, 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 on, a, on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. And we talked pre-show. I agree with what you're saying, Mike. Um, we talked pre-show yesterday, Shape America sent out a tweet that I that I caught like it's so hard to see everything on Twitter even with the Fazetta hashtag because you got to dig so f- deeply into all the tweets but right. I just happened right timing I saw this tweet that Shape America had sent out and it was essentially uh, an op sorry you're gonna hear some music right now so I'm just gonna let it let it play this is our bell school bell so each hang on sorry about that So each week, a different grade level picks the, the bell of the week, and it's, and it's a song. And then that, that's, that song is played during every recess break and, uh, and end of the day and start of the day. It's pretty cool. But, um, yeah, so the idea is that uh, Shape America released 20 indicators um, of effective physical education instruction. So it's like a checklist that administrators can use when they go into a class to observe uh, physical education teachers, what they can look for for teaching excellence. 
So I opened it up and I looked at it and right away I was like, holy smokes, there's nothing in here that's PE specific. And I think that's amazing is that, that it wasn't PE specific. There was moderate to rigorous uh, physical activity as one, one box. And there was uh, the idea of movement, which was another box. So I wrote a, a blog post about it because again, I wanted, I, I just want to put it out there and challenge teachers to forget learning about the next best activity and the different ways to play tag and, and all of this. Just put that aside for, for a month and focus solely on the non-PE specific pedagogical excellence and focus in on those areas. And I think that will improve the quality of your physical education program. Um, but it was, it was interesting that, um, you know, all the different areas and they had nothing to do with PE at all. And they could be used, that checklist could be used by a classroom teacher. You know, the idea of setting up their learning environment in a warm and nurturing way, what they do at the beginning of class, what they do at the end of class, the assessment that they use. So, um, what are your thoughts on, on that as we, as we kind of close off? What are your thoughts on, on what it takes to be a great PE teacher? Yeah, I think good pedagogy is good pedagogy. It's good teaching is good teaching. And I, I think those are applicable to all disciplines. And I think even if you're in physical education, you, you have to think about those things that are going to make your classroom successful. What are you doing at the beginning? How does every kid feel welcomed when they come through your door? How do you end a class to make sure they leave on a high note and are excited for the next class? How, you know, what, what is their uh, level of comfort taking a risk in your classroom environment? Because that's huge, not only in, in math or language arts, but in, in physical education, it's a huge thing. So all those pieces that have to do with things other than activity are critical to a physical educator's success. It just has to be the first thing they think about, but the rest of it will then flow once that's in place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so we're going to wrap up here, and I'm going to I'm going to put you in the hot seat like I do with all of my guests at the end. You didn't know the hot seat was coming, did you? <laughs> no, <laughs> but you can you can handle it. Um, so I, it's simply just one last piece of advice. So what do you want to leave teachers with? Um, one last piece of advice from Mike Kuzala. Familiarize yourself with the research, not only on physical fitness and cognitive disciplines, but also on good pedagogy. Those things in combination are going to make for a fantastic physical education experience for all children. Okay, great. Great. Good advice. And uh, Mike, I, I just want you to stay on. I'm going to just say bye to everybody. Stop the recording and then we'll just uh, we'll just catch up at the end of the show. But uh, thank you, everybody, for listening today's, uh, to today's uh, Run Your Life podcast episode with Mike Kazala. Um, it's been a pleasure, Mike. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, thank you very much for having me in. And uh, to everybody else, um, you can find information on Mike's uh, books and um, other references that we made to the third teacher and other things in the show notes. Um, hope you keep listening to my Run Your Life podcast series. Thanks a lot, everybody, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. 
To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.